0: So today Glenn O'Massie sits down with Carla Hutcherson And Carla works for Lifeline Counseling and Consulting. She's also the director for Hannah for Hope, who partners with schools. Um, they go into schools and help with people who are considering or have been struggling with suicide ideation. And in today's conversation, Glenn and Carla talk about practical ways that uh, we can help just get the word out and help get information out about people who are considering or struggling with suicide.
1: Okay, so today we are talking about suicide, and our guest is Carla Hutcherson. She is a LPC um, LPC supervisor um, in our community, and she is going... She specializes in treating teens and um, depression, anxiety. She has years of experience in private practice, and she has years of experience working in the children's health care system, working in the emergency department, um, consulting with patients that come in with depression, suicide ideation, um, those kind of things, and so We are welcoming her. Thank you for joining us.
2: You are welcome. I'm so glad to be here.
1: Absolutely. So I wanted to have this conversation with you about suicide. I saw on Facebook that you're going into private practice, you're leaving the children's health care system, and that you're also the director of Hannah for Hope. And there is... um, attention. There's a spotlight on helping teens with depression, suicide ideation, anxiety. And the thought came to mind, like, we don't talk about suicide, especially with teens and adolescents. We don't have the conversation. It's not dinner conversation at all. And I think the more we talk about it, um, the more help we can provide to our communities and helping families and helping individuals and kids get through hard times. And then you compound that with COVID. I think it's important for us to have this conversation for families, but it's also important for us to have the conversation so that like, teachers, parents, pastors, the school bus driver has this information so they know what they can do, how to spot it. And then to know how to intervene and what they can do to make a difference.
2: Absolutely. Those are all important factors. Yeah.
1: So do you mind sharing with us a little bit about your journey that brought you to the specialization? How, like, what brought you here? Like, when you were little, did you think, man, I'm going to be a therapist when I grow up and (laughs) I'm going to work with teens? Or... What's you know, that journey look like?
2: I didn't actually think about this particular journey when I was a kid. I really thought I was going to be a wonderful lawyer. Um, so I guess in a way, still help, helping families, and so that's always been on my heart. But it took a different path once I got to college. So I entered, I entered into um, the education uh, field as um, in my bachelor's degree and graduated with the education degree and then um, got my master's in counseling and really wanted to pursue um, being a school counselor. Which which I did do early in my career at I don't know if you've heard of that place called Liberty Christian School Yeah oh, okay. so, so, yeah so I was there um, you know as they uh, left Denton and moved into Argyle and um, was a um, in the upper school as a counselor there and then from there I went and did a private practice but I focused mainly on foster children so I would go into foster homes and work with uh, children who are struggling as well as I worked in a shelter and a and a unit where um, we, uh, where I, provided the counseling and group therapy for for those kiddos. And many of them struggled with trauma, depression, anxiety, behavior problems, and of course, suicidality and non-suic- non-suicidal self injury. Okay. So those are things that I dealt with for many years before I went to Children's. Um, then I made that jump to Children's. They were starting a suicide prevention um, IOP program called SPARK. And so I started with them on that first year. And um, I worked uh, in the SPARK program for several years, working with families and teens, and then transitioned over to the emergency room where we began to do interventions uh, for kids who made an attempt or who had suicide ideation from the moment they got to the ER. We would start an intervention with them. Wow. And so um, that we also took those interventions onto the medical floor. And uh, we've continued to research a, a certain intervention that we have been providing for the last couple of years called the FISP or the Family Intervention for Suicide Prevention. And it really focuses on um, working with families, educating parents, helping kids uh, communicate with their parents about suicidality and their mood and helping parents really understand the safety of, um, you know, making the home safe as well as being open to listening to their kids and really talking about suicide and being able to be that support system for them.
1: Oh, my goodness. I am so glad we have you here to talk to us about all these things. It sounds like this um, interview may go a little longer than <laughs> what we anticipated. But that that is so exciting. So tell me about, like, where do we start talking about this? Like, where do
2: we – do we start with statistics? Do we start with um, – Sure. I think um, starting with statistics, just to help everyone kind of understand the impact of suicide in our communities is really important. So currently, suicide is the second leading cause of death for 10 to 24-year-olds. Wait, wait, wait. From 10-year-old to Mm -hmm. 24-year-old? Second leading cause of death. Okay. That's
1: a really young age, 10 years old. Yes.
2: And they just recently, uh, in the last couple of years, lowered that to 10 years old. It used to be 15 to 24. And then uh, several years ago, they um, moved it to 10 to 24-year-old. Okay. Second leading cause of death. Yes, and in 2019, 18.8% of high school students seriously considered attempting suicide in the U.S., and 8.9% actually made attempts, and that's a lot of students that we are dealing with. Um, Approximately 20% of teens who have made an attempt will make another one in in the next six months. So it's a serious problem. Okay, so if they've attempted, then they're more likely to attempt it again. Yes, and that's why following up with treatment and really understanding the impact of uh, treating depression and anxiety um, in order to avoid a second attempt is really important. So that treatment compliance is really important. Okay. Um, And and also 60% of us will personally know someone in our life who has tried to commit suicide, which is...
0: really astounding. That
2: is astounding. Yeah, That's a huge number. Yeah. And so if we really think about it, if we think about uh, adolescents who are making, or anyone who's making a suicide attempt, one of the biggest factors is mental illness. And so we really want to focus on um, treating mental illness and taking that stigma away from talking about mental illness because it is a medical condition. Depression and anxiety are medical conditions. They're not something someone chooses to to have. So we really want to look at it from that perspective and realize that 90% of deaths by suicide had a diagnosis of a mental condition or a mental
1: illness. That is really good information. So how do we make a difference there with parents? Like I know you were talking about the program you have at Children's where you're talking to families. Um, what are some of the things that that families
2: need to know to identify mental illness in their child? Sure. Let's look at some of the different risk factors um, okay. that go along with um depression, anxiety, and suicidal behaviors. Um, typically, there is a psychiatric, dis- psychiatric disorder, and many kids who have a psychiatric disorder, um, a family member will also have it. So it's uh, something that is genetic, and so we want to make sure that we are aware of that. And if a parent knows of that they either suffer for that or that they have a close family member who does, to make sure that you're watching your child because that could be passed down to them. And so we want to make sure that we're watching for those signs. So I have a question about that. <clears throat> so
1: sometimes, like, I don't think families sometimes embrace that I have anxiety or I have depression or I have another mental health disorder. Like, in how, like, what are some ways to help them identify um, that maybe they do have a mental health disorder, like the parents do? Like, what are some things that we can do to help bring awareness and help it help? Um, parents say, hey, I need some help too.
2: Yeah, I think if you're really struggling, you know, kind of managing your own emotions and you kind of find your mood all over the place, if you're finding yourself with really low moods or fluctuating moods, or if you're really having a trouble um, regulating your emotions, like you get really angry and it just gets really intense or really sad, sad and it's very intense. And it's hard to kind of move in and out of that or to find recovery or to be able to do something uh, using certain coping skills to kind of manage that. Um, also, if you're finding it's it's affecting your relationships and things. Those are things that you might want to talk to a professional about because there could be some kind of mood disorder in there that's, that's really affecting your ability to manage your mood as well as to be able to regulate your emotions.
1: That's really helpful because I think sometimes people wait till they're like, I just can't get out of bed or yes. I haven't showered in three days. Yes. And they're not paying attention to mood regulation in the day-to-day and just they're everyday interactions with other people yeah. and whether they're angry or moody and identifying find like, oh, maybe I do need to seek out some help yeah. with this.
2: And I think that's true. I think a lot of times we we kind of push it off. We don't want to talk about mm-hmm. it. We, want, we don't want to kind of admit that something's mm-hmm. going on. But I think really helping to understand that um, – Having a mental illness doesn't make me crazy. It means I have an illness. Like if I had a heart disease or if I had diabetes, I would treat those things. So why wouldn't I treat my mental illness? And so that's really important to take care of yourself and be aware that that's not something you caused. It's something you need to treat.
1: I love that. That really puts it in terms where I think people can seek out the help that they need. Okay, so number one, parents acknowledge, like, if I have a mental health illness or a history of it or in my family, just know that I can look for it in my child Absolutely. as well. Okay.
2: Yeah, we also want to look at, has your child had a previous attempt or have they had any self-harming behaviors, whether that's cutting, you know, scratching, things that uh, teens do. Uh, so we want to make sure that we're being aware of those things. Um, and kids like to hide them. They're really good at that. So just kind of being aware, being, um, you know, being really vigilant and looking at your child and being aware of what's going on with them. I think a lot of times we get so caught up in our phones or our TV shows that we don't necessarily take the time to notice the small details.
1: So what are some signs that a parent would pay attention to, like the difference between a moody teenager and a teenager who may be contemplating suicide?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's going to be some similarities and a child who has depression and anxiety and one that's kind of just kind of going through some changes in their, you know, uh, know, with hormones and things like that. So you're going to see some of that moodiness, irritability, uh, fatigue, um, maybe some mood swings there. Um, You're going to see them maybe having a lack of interest in doing things or maybe some isolation. So a a moody teen could have those things too, but it's when we're really seeing that to an extreme where it's very different than our child's kind of baseline behavior Mm-hmm. Um, if we're really seeing that it's affecting things that they love, they're losing interest in those things. Mm-hmm. We're hearing them talk about being more hopeless and helpless, maybe being, um, uh, you know, th- that feeling of burdensomeness where they feel like, you know, they're just in the way. Um, maybe we hear them just talk about like, I wish I could go to sleep and not wake up. You know, when they're making statements like that, that's a whole different level than moodiness. And so we really want to be aware of those statements and really, uh, you know, Parents know their children better than anybody. So when you really see these changes going on, continue to evaluate that. Continue to say, is this just like maybe they're just not feeling good today, but does it go on long term? Is it going on for days at a time? Are they not interacting with their friends as much? Are their grades falling? You know, and things like that. So those are the things we really want to watch for and then have it evaluated if we find it to be um, more significant than what's manageable. Okay, so what I heard you say is put down your phone, Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) um, close
1: your computer, pay attention to the shifts in behavior, pay attention to the shifts in mood, pay attention to grades, pay attention to friends and interaction with friends, pay attention to are they enjoying things like they used to enjoy. It made me think about um, our son when he was 10 or 11, my dad died, and about... Six months after my dad died, our son quit playing the guitar. He didn't want to go to guitar lessons. Like, he just didn't want to pick it up anymore. And I started noticing some of these other signs of like he wasn't engaging with friends on the playground as much and he was struggling with grades a little bit. Um, And so I was paying attention. I was talking to him. I was making sure, like, He's eating nutritious meals. We're exercising every day. I'm available to talk with him. And then I sought out our pediatrician and asked him for, hey, give me some feedback on what is going on. And so he gave me some really great advice. And so we had a a window of time to give him me to continue doing the things I was doing as a parent and then if he hadn't had any change in that time frame then I was to call back and we would take our next step and so it was a short frame of time but to the date we one night I was in bed we heard him pick up his guitar and he started playing and singing and I was like we were like oh, that was, it was a relief because yes. he started enjoying life again.
2: Yes. And I think mm-hmm. that's a great uh, story that he was able to work through that. But had he not been able to, mm-hmm. seeking that professional help like you did is the exact thing that, that parents should do. Absolutely. Yes.
1: Seek out, talk to your pediatrician. Reach out to a counselor who yes. specializes um, in treating teens. And one want to emphasize pediatric care or adolescent care is important because... You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the approach may be a little bit different with teens and adolescents than it is with adults.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I think, like you said, having those regular appointments where somebody is evaluating and screening them with these questions, because many times we don't know. Kids are so good at masking things that they're going through that as parents, we may miss something because our kids don't want us to know. Mm -hmm. But when they are able to talk to a professional in a situation where they're being screened, they're able to answer those questions a little more honestly. And so that's always a good thing to do just to have those follow-up appointments.
1: I love that. Okay. So is there another thing on your list?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And one thing I wanted to mention is, um, you know, I hear parents all the time complain about the amount of time that their kids are on their phones. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I also find is we're not leading by example. So if we're wanting our kids to put their phones down, we've got to do the same thing. And that's how you build connection. And so if we're all on our phones together in the same room, we're not building connection. And that's something that we really want. If we're really wanting to know what's going on with our children, we have to build that connection. Um, And so really, again, I think I talked about a little bit about the hopelessness and impulsivity. We see kids with depression, anxiety being very impulsive. They aren't able to regulate their emotions very well. And so they make decisions very quickly without thinking about the consequences of those decisions. And so those are some other uh, risk factors that we see. Also that hostility and aggression, especially if it's not normal for our kids. If we see those things happening, we know there's something going on with them. And so we really want to evaluate that and have them talk to a professional when we're seeing those kinds of changes. In addition to drug and alcohol use, just being very aware of that um, and that we want to continue to watch for that because a lot of times kids are self medicating because they're feeling so bad.
1: So, I found in um, when I've met with some teens, I'm surprised at um, how accessible alcohol is and how accessible drugs are to our teens. Yes. And preteens, too.
2: And we do a lot of education around that. And in in our field, uh, we're constantly going over access to lethal means. And those would be some of the things that we want to make sure that we're locking those things up at home. Because again, if your teen is suffering and they're wanting a quick fix, they're going to look for those things to help them feel better. Or if they're having suicidal thoughts, those are things that they can grab really easily. So we want to make sure, I mean, it could be as simple as Tylenol. We don't think about that, but we buy those big bottles from SAMs. And those, the kids are overdosing on those and that can be lethal. And so we want to make sure that we are not leaving those things out, especially if we have a child who's suffering from mental illness.
1: Can you list a few more things that are lethal? Because Tylenol would not have been on my list. (laughs) Um, List a few more things that, that, children have access to that are lethal to them?
2: I mean, any prescription drug should always be locked in, uh, you know, locked up from kids. Um, but Tylenol, Advil, Motrin, um, Benadryl, <laughs> any of those things that we would just normally have in our house, a child who's suicidal can uh, create a concoction of those things or take enough of them to really hurt themselves. And so we really want to make sure that when we... Um, know that our child is struggling with mental illness, that we're keeping all medications locked in a lockbox and only giving them what they need when they need it. Okay, that
1: is really good advice. So what other risk factors, are there any other risk factors on your list that we need to consider, signs or
2: symptoms? Yeah. And, uh, you know, we always have, you know, kids, if you're a school uh, counselor, if you're an educator looking for, you know, uh, looking at kids who have a parent with a psychiatric illness or maybe looking for signs of neglect or abuse, as well as we want to make sure that we're educating parents on availability of lethal agents. We talked about the medications, but we also need to talk about, you know, guns and safes for gun safes and making sure we keep ammo and guns uh, locked up separately Um, because, you know, we live in Texas and guns are pretty, you know, people have them. And so we want to make sure that we don't want to take those away from people, but we also want to make sure that our homes are safe. And if you have a child who has had multiple attempts, I would remove those items from your home until your child is in a better place. Um, But we just want to make sure those things are uh, safely put away and that uh, kids don't have access to them.
1: Okay. So we're going to lock All these things away in a safe, so we're gonna invest in a safe.
2: (laughs) Yes, right? Yes, very true. And remember, if you have them with combinations, change the combinations, your kids will figure them out. If it's with a key, keep the key with you at all times. Those are things that you want to remember. That's good advice. Those are
1: some things I've not thought about. Yeah. Okay, so um, what about like pastors? the school bus driver, Mm -hmm. teachers, what are some things that we can be looking for? What's some advice for us where we can help give teens, um, adolescents, children some hope?
2: Absolutely, I think um, it's really important to build connections with kids to really find out what the root cause of those things are. A lot of times, we are really quick to label a child a bad kid or you know a kid with you know behavior problems. Well, a lot of those things are stem from something else or something underlying that kids are reacting to, and so we really want to be aware of those. We want to provide them a sp- safe space to talk. Um, we want to kind of take away that stigma of mental illness if a child is suffering with depression we want to treat them just like they're normal and that we want to normalize that for them and help them work through it and get them in a place where they're not uh, scared to 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 deal with it and to let somebody know that they're struggling so I think just having that open communication with them being real with them um, not being scared to talk to them about those things or ask them questions um always be uh never be scared to ask a child if you feel like there's something going on ask them if they uh, have a thoughts of suicide? Are they? Do they have a plan to hurt themselves? Um, because it doesn't hurt to ask. It's not going to make them want to commit suicide.
1: So go ahead and ask, so create a safe environment for them to to come and talk about whatever's on their mind. Normalize what's going on with them and that it's safe to talk. And then go ahead and ask the question. Yes. Ask the question: Are you having thoughts of harming yourself? Are you having thoughts of, of taking suicide? your life mm-hmm. of suicide? Yes. Okay. And then, do you have d- a plan? Making sure we ask them if they have a plan as well. So go through those list of questions. So, let's say one of our pastors was meeting with a student, and they were thinking that maybe they were considering suicide. What would you tell that pastor? How would you coach them through that conversation with a student?
2: Sure. First, I would you know, praise them for talking, coming to me and talking to me about it because that takes a lot of courage for a child to be able to open up to an a, an, a trusted adult. Um, and then let them know, hey, many people struggle with this, and, and you're going to be okay. There's treatment for this, and we can definitely deal with this, but we need to get you in a place where we can get you with a uh, trained professional that can help you work through this problem and make sure that you're being medically treated as well. Um, and let them know. I mean, Ask those questions. Have you had thoughts of hurting yourself? Do you have a plan? Um, and talk to them through that. And then um, ask the child, is it okay if you sit with them and talk to their parents with them, so that we can make sure that they get the connections that they need in the community.
1: So don't leave them alone. Like don't if leave they them have alone. a plan, don't leave them alone. Say, hey, let's call your mom and dad. Yes. And you stick with them until their parents get there. Absolutely. What if they don't feel comfortable with you calling like their parents or? next of kin, like, what are some ways to get around that, but still say, I need to call somebody?
2: Yeah. And I think that being honest with them and telling them, you know, your safety is the most important thing to me right now. And I can't not tell your parents. This is something that we're gonna to have to share with them together and I'll do it with you, but we can't not tell them because your safety is the most important thing. And you, while you're feeling so bad right now, I want you to realize that once we get you in the place where you can get some help with this, you're going to feel so much better and you're gonna look at this with a totally different eyes. Awesome, okay. So let's say our pastors met with a teen, parents are on their way, parents get there what is their next step? The next step would be to take them to the nearest emergency room and have them have a full mental health evaluation so that we can look at the severity of their situation and then make, um, you know, what is our next steps? What are the next steps? What is the disposition that needs to happen? Do they they need an inpatient setting to stabilize them? Or can we get them to a higher level of outpatient care, whether it be a partial hospitalization or an IOP program? But really having that mental health professional and that mental health evaluation so that we can really determine the next best steps for the child. Okay, so another question comes to mind when you say that. Should they seek help
1: like at a children's hospital, like at Cook's or Children's, or or just
2: any hospital will do. How do
1: you decide which hospital to go to?
2: I think think that's an individual parent decision. I think you have to look at the severity of the situation your child is in. If they are in imminent danger, I would take them to the nearest ER. If they're in a situation where they can safely travel in a car and you want to take them to a hospital uh, that's maybe a little farther away and you feel like you can keep them safe in the car, then that is something that you have a choice to make. But definitely, we want to look at safety first. And if they're imminent danger, we want to take them to the nearest ER.
1: Okay. So then from there, let's say the hospital says, hey, they need inpatient treatment or maybe outpatient. What are their choices? Like, where can we go? Can we go online and get reviews on what's available to help treat our teens? Like, how do they decide where... What's the best place for my teenager?
2: I think the internet is great for getting reviews, but you also have to remember most people who make reviews are usually not happy with whatever service they got. So you may not always get an accurate description. I think, um, you know, read the reviews, talk to friends. Um, If you know someone who is a counselor, reach out to them and see what their recommendations are. Um, But I think the other thing to do is you can always contact your insurance company, and many of them have care managers that can help you kind of walk through the process and look at making the you know, the right choice for your child.
1: Okay. So I do, and I have another question. Um, So I've talked with a mom, and it's like the teenage boy that's like 17 years old, Mm -hmm. six, like it seems to be difficult to find a spot for them to get care and the medication they need, psychiatric care that needs to follow up. Have you, can you speak to that at all? Is that true
2: for... I don't know. What does that look like for teen boys? Well, teen boys are still teens until they're 18. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we would still treat them with an adolescent psychiatrist and mm-hmm. still put them in an adolescent program. Right. Um, I, I, you know, I do get the fears of that. Uh, but I, I feel like, you know, at that stage, they're still in a place to be in that particular child and adolescent care um, until they're. Eighteen, and we see that at children's we treat seventeen-year-olds and
1: okay. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so the children's hospitals will treat up to seventeen
2: or eighteen years old. They will treat up to seventeen years old. Okay, um, and now a child who's in care who may turn 18, and, and I don't know this for every children's hospital, so I don't want to mm-hmm. speak on behalf of all of them. But in my experience, if a child's already in care and they're still in high school and they turn 18, they will finish out that year and get them into a transition program of some sort to um, adult care at that point. Okay. But they won't just drop them the moment they turn 18. They usually will help mm-hmm. with a transition process. So th- I think that's it's the transition process that can get kind of yes.
1: sticky, that that gap that we have to mind that they don't slip through it.
2: Yes. And I do think there are psychiatrists who are really good about kind of following through with care until you can get them with a, an adult psychiatrist. And so they're gonna make sure that you're not falling through the cracks as long as you're working with them and really giving them, you know, the information that you need. Awesome.
1: Okay. I'm gonna look through my questions and see sure, if there's absolutely. anything that we've missed. <laughs> um Okay, so I am wondering if there's a piece of of advice that you would like to give that we ha- that I haven't asked you the question.
2: If there's something you want to add
1: to what you've already shared. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, one of the biggest pieces of advice is, that I would really like to leave here today is is to really understand. Don't be scared to ask. I think we always uh, we try to walk around those questions, but ask them very directly. Do you have a plan to hurt yourself? Are you having thoughts of hurting yourself? Um, By asking those questions, we can save a life. And so we really want to make sure that we um, don't don't fall in the trap of being scared to ask those questions. Uh, And teens can ask their peers that. Parents can ask their kids that. Teachers can ask their students that. That's a question that we should be asking, especially if a child is struggling and they're not in the place that they should be and we're really noticing those changes. Ask those questions because... The worst thing, I mean, they may say no and that's okay. But if they say yes, it gives us the opportunity to get them the help that they need. And so that's really important that we make sure that we ask that question. We also want to make sure, and this is a Hannah for Hope motto. um, And so I really wanted to make sure that we uh, let people know you matter, you're never alone. And Mm -hmm. so we want to make sure that they leave knowing that somebody is there for them, somebody cares, they're never alone and their life matters.
1: I love that. Okay, so we're that's the message we're gonna leave with everybody we meet with like your life matters. You're not alone in this. So in closing, somebody may want to talk to you. Somebody, yes, one of absolutely. our listeners may want to reach out to you, so share with us information of how to contact you individually and or how to contact you through Hannah for Hope because yes. Hannah for Hope is the arm that goes into schools and yes, and sets up these plans, right? Yes. Okay. And so,
2: in my private practice, um, I have uh, joined um, teams with Hannah for Hope, and I'm now the director. It's a nonprofit organization, um, so I treat adolescents in my private practice with depression, anxiety, and suicidal behaviors. Hannah. for Hope actually goes into schools and works with teens to be proactive. So we're really working with them to understand the signs um, of of recognizing their peers who are in trouble and what to do once that happens. So we do school assemblies and we do um, school education uh, seminars and things for uh, educators and administrators on really helping to integrate kids with mental health issues back into the school system as well. So you can reach us at uh, lifelinecms.com or hannahforhope.com. Com. And either way, those messages will get back to me and we will make sure that you're taken care of. Thank you for joining us, Carla. I appreciate you. You're so welcome. You this thank information it will
1: help so many families and bring healing and hope to so many teens. Well, thank you so much for having me, Glenna. Absolutely.
0: So I hope you've enjoyed our conversations. Remember to like, share, follow, subscribe, and all that good stuff. And if you ever want to talk to someone in The Healing Place, We're here for you. Please pick up the phone and call, email, or find us on crosstimberschurch.org, The Healing Place, or find us on our Facebook page, The Healing Place Crew.